Let us pray. Father, all wise from everlasting, we bless you for your word, the word which was from the beginning, the word which has always been with you, the word which shares your divinity, the word made flesh dwelling among us. Grant that we might behold in him your glory, that in that word we might hear you, that in that word we might meet you, that in that word we might be transformed by you. To the name of Christ, your incarnate word, be all glory. And to you, O Father, and to your Holy Spirit, be all praise, one God forever and ever. Amen. There will be no additional lesson of the day as I am preaching from the passage we have just read in John chapter 1. Let us pray together. Father, we do give you thanks and praise for your eternal plan of salvation fulfilled by your word, your eternal son, who in the fullness of time became flesh and entered into our history and our humanity in order to rescue us from sin and death and darkness to give us your life and your life that we might behold your glory in him. May we see his glory today and in seeing him, the son, know you as well, our heavenly father. This we pray, giving you praise and thanks. Amen. When does the Christmas story really begin? And we might say that the Christmas story began 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born. That's certainly where Luke's gospel takes us. That's where Luke begins his version of the Christmas, Christmas story in a manger with a birth. Some might say, oh no, we need to go further back than that. The Christmas story really has its roots in the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, the anointed one, the king that God would send into the world. Prophecies like Genesis 3.15 about the seed of the woman who would come to crush the serpent's head. Or prophecies like Isaiah 9, we read this morning, that God would raise up a mighty king who would rule over all, and of the increase of his government there would be no end. Of course, that's true as well. But we can go even further back to the very beginning, even before the beginning, to before creation. The Christmas story really begins in eternity because it starts with the Trinity. And John, in his opening prologue in his gospel, shows us this. That's so important. Even for us as devout Christians, we can so easily lose sight of what we're really celebrating this time of year. Even if we talk about Jesus, we can over-sentimentalize that and detach the birth of Jesus from everything else that Scripture connects it to. So even while we're celebrating and, and we've got presents and family time and the seasonal movies and the parties and all of that is wonderful, what we have to remember is that behind all of that and underneath all of that stand these fundamental bedrock truths of the Christian faith, namely the Trinity and the Incarnation. This is really what Christmas is all about. The Trinity and the Incarnation. The word Christmas implies as much. The word Christmas is the combination, obviously, of two words. It's Christ plus Mass. Christ, that's the Anointed One, the Son of God. That points us to the Incarnation. And then Mass, that's actually the old Latin word for sending. Sending out. Well, who sent the Christ into the world? The Father, of course. So as soon as you use that word Christmas, you are invoking the Incarnation and the Trinity. 
there's a whole lot more to Christmas than just a birth of a baby and a manger scene. And John's Gospel shows us that. In these opening verses in John's Gospel, we have a gateway to Christmas, a gateway to the meaning of Christmas and really to the whole Christian faith. If John's prologue was a mountain range, these first 18 verses, if you think of them as a mountain range, there are four peaks in that mountain range I want us to catch a glimpse of this morning. Those four peaks are word, light, life, and glory. There's a lot of other things going on here in these verses, but those would be the four high points. These are the key themes woven into this poetic prologue. So let's look at each one of these. The first peak John begins with the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now this is obviously an echo of Genesis, the opening verse of the book of Genesis. Only this time, the beginning in view is not creation. John is taking us all the way back to before the beginning of creation, the beginning before all beginnings. What was there before God made the world? It's a great question, isn't it? What was there before God made the world? Was God lonely? Well, no, look at what John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's like John is a reporter, and he's tracking down a story, and he's asking and answering all the right questions. When? You know, reporters ask when and where and who. What's what you have here? When? The Word was in the beginning. Where? The Word was with God. Who? The Word was God. It's all there. Now what does John mean when he talks about this Word? What is this Word? Well, in the Greek, it's the term logos. That's the term John uses. Logos. It was a philosophical term for the Greeks. The logos was considered truth beauty and goodness all wrapped up together. Truth, beauty, and goodness all together. That's the Logos. Uh, Truth, beauty, and goodness all wrapped up together. The Logos is wisdom and order. It's logic and rationality and purpose and meaning and knowledge. And certainly for John, the Greek sense of this term Logos, all of that's poured into his use of the term here. But what's striking is that for John, the Logos is also a person. A person who is one with God and yet distinct from God. In fact, the language that John uses here, speaking of the Logos, the wisdom of God, if you will, and then his role in creation, it seems to in some ways echo Proverbs chapter 8, where wisdom is personified as somehow being one with God and it also being God's agent in the creation of the world. And of course, there are further echoes of Genesis here. If we think back to Genesis, how does God create? God speaks. He creates through His Word. The Word is the one through whom God made all things. God spoke creation into existence through the power of His Word. So the Word is God's agent of creation. The Word is the Creator. And this is because God's Word is His act. God's Word is Himself. You might even say God's Word is His second self. The Word is God. That's what John says here. The Word then shares all God's attributes and perfections. The Word shares in all of God's works. The Word is fully divine. The Word was God in the beginning. The Word is 
as eternal and as infinite as God is. Everything God is, the Word is. Everything that can be found in God is found in the Word. And yet we also see this Word is somehow distinct from God. The Word was with God or alongside of God or face to face with God. The point then is that God has never been without His Word. God has always been a God who expresses and communicates Himself in and through His Word. God has never been silent or speechless or wordless. God has never been without this exact image or representation or mirror of Himself. God's Word is in some way identical with God even while being distinct from God. Now, what is this? Of course, this is what we Christians call the Trinity. John has not brought the Holy Spirit into the picture yet. He will do that later. But this is the Trinity. We Christians confess the Father is God and the Son is His Word. And the Father and the Son have been with one another and in union and communion with one another from all eternity. The Father and Son are somehow distinct persons within the life of God, and yet they each share fully in Godness, in Godhood, if you will. And so, no, God was not lonely before creation. God did not create out of loneliness to shore up some deficiency in Himself. If anything, we can say the Father and the Son created out of excess. Because the Father and Son were already in fellowship with one another. And if anything, God created because He desired to share this fellowship. The Father and the Son desired to share themselves with others. God and His Word have always been together, have always been in fellowship with one another, sharing one life as Father and Son within the Godhead. But now God will create. So there are creatures he can share himself with as well. You know, it's interesting. It's kind of play on words, of course. We talk about the Bible as the Word of God. And then here, John starts talking about the Son as the Word of God. What do we do with that? You know, someone might say, well, don't other gods have words of their own? You know, what about Allah? Uh, Allah has the Quran, right? Isn't the Quran the Word of Allah, the Word of God in that sense? And we can say, yes, Allah has a book. Allah has a word. But really, in a sense, Allah could do without it. His word is not a person, much less an eternal person. So the Quran could perhaps tell us what Allah wants from us, or perhaps even speak about Allah in some sense, but it cannot give us Allah because it is not Allah. It's entirely different from what we have in the Christian faith. We have in the Christian faith an inscripturated word. This is the word of God. We can call this book the word of God. But this inscripturated word of God is given to point us to the incarnate word of God, to bear witness to the incarnate word. And so ultimately our faith, our trust, our hope, our love, they're all directed towards Jesus, towards this incarnate Word. In the Christian Gospel, the Word of God is not merely a book. The Word is a person. Truth is not just a proposition. Truth is a person. And that person is Jesus. Why is Jesus here called the Word? Well, we use words to express who we are. Our words reveal 
through words, we reveal ourselves to others. God's Word, the Father's Word, is the exact expression of His being. And that's why later on in John's Gospel, Jesus can say, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. In seeing the Son, and seeing the Word of God, we see God Himself. Because the Word of God just is His supreme self-revelation, His supreme self-donation. And so what John is doing here in his opening prologue, he's giving us a glimpse of God's inner life. He's tracing everything back to its ultimate source. He's giving us a glimpse of God's triune existence. We could gloss the opening line of John's Gospel this way if we wanted to put it maybe in slightly more familiar language. In the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was God. He was in the beginning with the Father. That's what John is saying. That's the first mountain peak here. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the Word who was with God and who is God. Second mountain peak we see in verse 4. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. This Word, the Son, has life, and He gives life as He pleases. The Son is the source of all life. The Son has life in Himself. Now this builds on what we've just seen. God has life in Himself. And God created not because He needs us, but because He wants us. He wanted to create other lives He could share His life with in some way. Life doesn't just happen. God creates life. Life comes from God. The Word gives life. Life as we know it, life on planet Earth, Life did not just spring into existence on its own. The reality is there are some people who they'll mock and reject the virgin birth of Jesus only to embrace the virgin birth of the cosmos. As if the cosmos just sprung into existence out of nothing. It's totally irrational. But that's what a lot of people will do. We need to understand life. Life as we experience it, life as we see all around us, life is a gift. As creatures, we are completely dependent upon God for everything. And we must acknowledge this dependence. Every breath, every heartbeat comes from God. Only God has self-sustaining life. Only God's life is self-sustaining. Creaturely life Again, life as we experience it and see it all around us is not autonomous, it's not natural, it's not self-generating. No, life is a gift. And John tells us here, the Word is the fountain from which all life flows. He has life in Himself. In Him was life. But what is John talking about here? What kind of life? It's not just the life we have as creatures that is in view here. No, it's the new life given to us as He comes to rescue us from sin and death. This life, eternal life, really becomes the theme of John's Gospel. John, throughout his Gospel, will talk not just about life, but about eternal life. And this does become one of the grand themes of his Gospel. John John chapter 20, you come to the very end of his Gospel. Why did John write what he wrote? John tells us he wrote his gospel that we might believe 
and in believing have eternal life. There it is, this life that the Word gives to us. It's really the theme of this same author, his letter of 1 John. This life is really the theme of that letter as well. 1 John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, the opening of that letter. He says, that which was from the beginning. So he's got that same kind of opening statement in his letter uh, of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and seen and handled concerning the word of life. The life that was manifested and seen and we bear witness to and declare to you eternal life which was with the Father. What is this life that John is speaking about in 1 John chapter 1? The life is Jesus Himself. It's a life that the Son has had with the Father from all eternity. A life He's now imparting to us. And at the end of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, this is our testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Where is this life found? All life comes from the Son, from the Word. See, what is John doing in this opening prologue back in his Gospel? He's not just giving us a creation story. He's giving us a new creation story. And and all those echoes of Genesis, he's not just retelling Genesis. He's saying that the Word entered into our world in order to recreate the world. It's not just life that he gives. It's new life. It's eternal life. And this kind of life is found only in The Word. Jesus is the life of the world. Jesus is the life of the world. John goes on to describe this new life later on, a few verses down in this chapter. He describes this new life that Jesus, the Word, gives to us in terms of our own sonship. Jesus is uniquely the Son, the only begotten Son of the Father, but He makes us sharers in His own sonship in some way. And so this new life we have in Jesus, we live as sons. That's what this new life means. In Him, we are given the right to become sons of God. He describes this in verse 12. We now live a new life as sons of God. With a father who loves us and an elder brother who is there for us in every way and a promised inheritance and everything we could possibly need, everything that a, that a father could ever give to his children, we now have the Father gives to us through His eternally begotten Son. In Him was life. The next peak is closely related. Light. That life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not grasp it, or I think better translated, the darkness could not overcome it. John introduces this imagery of light, again, echoing Genesis 1. God is light. And light is the first thing God creates. Everything God made in some way reveals Himself. But this is especially true of light. Light is the ultimate symbol for God with its purity and its brilliance. It points us to holiness and truth and knowledge and love. All the ways we use light as a symbol Later in John's Gospel, Jesus will declare, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the life of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. The world needs life because the world is dead. And the world needs light because the world has become dark. 
And this too becomes a grand theme in John's Gospel. John chapter 3. We find the light has come into the world and men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. When that light came, men were like roaches scurrying for cover when the light gets switched on. They did not want their evil deeds to be exposed. And so they ran from the light. They sought to hid from the light. Light exposes darkness. Light exposes the darkness of the world. And that's why men hate the light. But this light comes not just to expose the darkness, it comes to expel the darkness. This light comes to drive darkness out of the world, to conquer our darkness. His life overcomes our death. His light overcomes our darkness. And this really is what Christmas is all about, right? The coming of the light. This is why we associate lights with Christmas. We've got candles. We've got lights on the tree. Everywhere you go this time of year, you see lights, all different colors of lights. Lights are everywhere. It's glorious. And all of those lights at Christmas time point us to Jesus as the light of the world. His light, His unending light, breaking into the darkness of the world. Christmas comes at the darkest time of the year for a reason. Because Jesus comes as the light shining into the darkness. Isaiah 60 prophesied this. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Malachi 4 prophesied this. The sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. A light like the sun will arise over the earth and bring healing and warmth and joy to all. Christmas is all about this coming of the light, the dawning of the light. And John tells us this light is victorious. There's a conflict between light and darkness. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John tells us right off the bat, he wants his readers to know, whatever else happens in this story he's telling, it's going to have a happy ending. Whatever kind of darkness is manifest through the course of the story, the darkness will not overcome the light. The light wins in the end. The darkness cannot stop the light. The light will drive out the darkness. And this is what God has done for us. It's what God has done in the world. It's what God does in our hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul captures the same kind of imagery of gospel light, of Christ as the light, of God speaking light into our hearts. Paul says God makes the light of the gospel shine into our hearts. God commands the light to shine into the darkness of our hearts. It's as though God peers into the darkness of your heart as one who loves the darkness and hates the light. God looks into the darkness of your heart and God says, let there be light. And suddenly Jesus is there dwelling in your heart, bringing light into your life. Every light we're familiar with in creation can be put out. Candles can be blown out. Light bulbs blow out. Even the sun, we're told, will eventually burn out. But not this light. This light that comes from the Word is a light that can never be extinguished. As John probes the meaning of this light, he brings John the Baptist into the story. A man sent from God as a forerunner, a prophet, a man who will come to witness to the light that through him others might believe in the light. John is not the light himself. He was quite a character, so we read about him in the Gospels. He was not the light. 
He's going to be questioned by others later in this first chapter of John's gospel, whether or not he's the light. They ask, are you the Christ? Are you the new Elijah? Are you the promised prophet? No, 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 John says. John says that he has come. He confesses that he has come to point others to the true light that has come into the world. The one who was before him, who has now come after him into the world. John came to point people to Jesus. But John's ministry was rejected by most. And that creates the ironic situation described in verses 10 and 11. The word, the life, the light is rejected by men as well. How does John describe it? He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and they rejected him. The creation cannot recognize its creator. It would be like a child who no longer recognizes his parent or an animal who no longer recognizes its master. You know, there's that, that saying, that biblical saying, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. Well, here you could restate that as the creator has no honor in his creation. This is the story John is telling us, a story where humans are full of darkness and death, where humans despise the light and life that God sends to them. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him, whether that's coming to the Jewish people as a Jew or just coming to humanity as a human. Either way, the point is we did not receive the light and the life God sent to us. Indeed, John shows us here, we will only receive him as our life and our light if he gives us a new birth. It is by God's grace and God's grace alone that we come to see the light and hear the word and live a new life. John chapter 1 verse 13, we are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God has to do a work so mighty, so miraculous in your life. It is akin to a new birth. And only then will you come to believe in this light and this life. Only then will you receive Him as He is, as the One who has come to rescue you. Well, finally, we come to the fourth peak in John's opening prologue. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. These verses, verses 14 to 18, are so full. There's, there's only a, just, We can barely scratch the surface here. But what is John talking about? He is talking about the mystery of the incarnation. The Word made flesh. The Word who was with God and who was God from all eternity has now become man. And the Word has done this for what purpose? So that we might behold the glory of God. Jesus has done this. The Word was made flesh to make the invisible God visible. To make His hidden glory public. To take that glory public so all can see it. So His glory would be unveiled and revealed to all. It's the unveiling of the glory. It's interesting, John says the Word became flesh. He doesn't say the Word became human. 
though that would be true, or the word became man, that would be another true way to put it. He doesn't say the word took a body, though that also would be true. A lot of ways John could have expressed this truth, but John chose to use the word flesh. And I think we have to say he did so for a reason. Flesh, of course, is not evil in itself. The human body, you know, we're flesh and blood. The human body is God's good creation. The flesh is good. The body is good. We shouldn't forget that. But the term flesh in Scripture, after the fall in Genesis 3, the term flesh takes on different senses of meaning. It comes to refer to man, especially in his fallen condition, weakened by sin, susceptible to death, living in darkness. And so flesh is a term used throughout Scripture to describe human tendencies to sin. And so in Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in our lives, waging war against the flesh. It's contrary to the flesh. And there are these works of the flesh. Flesh describes human tendencies towards evil and wickedness. Flesh also is used to describe human frailty. Isaiah 40, the prophet says, all flesh is grass. And so like the grass in the hot summer sun, it fades away, it withers away. Why does John say the Word was made flesh? Because he's showing us the Word enters into our humanity, not in its pristine, pre-fall condition, but in its post-fall, dilapidated, and weakened state. John wants us to see the Word, that is the, the eternal Son of God, lived a fully human life in the flesh he lived a fully human life in Jesus. A life within the confines of the fallen world order. The God-man entered fully into our fallen humanity and lived within this fallen world order. Now, he never sinned himself, of course, because the Word is full of light and life. But he certainly suffered under the effects of sin. And he ultimately dies for sin at the hands of sinners. What John wants us to see is the full depth of the incarnation. This is a real and full incarnation. It goes all the way down to the very depths of our humanity. We even sang this morning about how he experienced human woe in all its fullness. You know, in the ancient Greek myths, sometimes the gods would briefly appear as men. But they did not become men truly or permanently. They did not experience human life in all of its brokenness and difficulty and sadness. There was no incarnation the way John is describing here. In fact, for the gods, for the, for the Greeks, this would have been completely distasteful to think of gods taking on icky, disgusting human flesh in a permanent kind of way. No, never. But that's what John says here, that God, the Son, has bound Himself to human flesh forever. And He lived life in that fallen human flesh. Again, John is showing us Jesus entered into the depths of the human condition. He experienced the worst human life has to offer. He walked a whole lot more than just a mile in our shoes. He walked for 33 years. And then he died the most shameful death of all. 
All in the weakness of human flesh. I mean, even the fact that he dies. I mean, why does John say that Jesus took flesh to himself? Because he wants us to know right off the bat that Jesus is going to die. He's going to go the way of all flesh. He took on flesh, and that meant he had to die because that's what happens to flesh. What is John showing us? He's showing us Jesus is just as much God as the Father is God. But He is also just as human as you and I are human. He's every bit as much God as the Father is God, and He's every bit as much human as you and I are human. But it's even more striking as you unpack what's here. John now puts together glory and flesh. There's nothing more inglorious than flesh. And yet John tells us here, it's through his flesh that the glory is revealed. There wouldn't seem to be anything glorious about flesh in its fallen state. But in this fragile flesh, God makes his glory known. And that really is the wonder of Christmas, is it not? It's the wonder of Christmas. It's also the wonder of Good Friday. It's the wonder of the whole Gospel. That God makes His glory known in this fragile and weak and fallen flesh that Jesus has taken to Himself. The Word who was face to face with His Father now brings us face to face with God as well. How? By becoming, by coming face to face with our humanity. He was face-to-face with God in the beginning. He now makes us face-to-face with God by coming face-to-face with our humanity in the Incarnation. God's eternal self-expression, God's exact image is now wrapped up in human flesh. So we can know the true God on our own terms. So we can behold God's glory in His Son. Because His Son has put on skin and lived a human life. This is the ultimate fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams that the Old Covenant Israelites would have had. Really summed up in Moses and his request in the book of Exodus. Moses says to God, I want to see you. Moses desired to see God's glory. And God says, I can't do that for you, Moses. All I can do is show you my backside. But now, what is John saying? Now, in the Word made flesh, we behold the glory of God face to face. What Moses longed to see, we now behold in Jesus. Moses delivered the law, but the law veiled God from the people. The law hid the glory of God away in the most holy place. In the incarnation, the veil is pulled back. The veil is torn through. And now God's glory is revealed for all to see. John calls this glory grace and truth. The fullness of God's presence with us and the fullness of God's revelation to us. It is grace upon grace, he says. Building upon the grace God gave to His old covenant people, now there's an even greater grace given to us in Jesus. And again, this is what Christmas is all about. This is why we use that Hebrew term, Emmanuel, God with us. This is what Christmas is all about. God coming near to us in Jesus. God becoming one of us. 
God revealing Himself to us and giving Himself to us. The Word has united Himself to our humanity. And now the Word has united us in our humanity to God. It's interesting, John chapter 1, verse 18. John says, the Son is in the heart of the Father. I want you to see just how close now our relationship to God is. John 1.18 says the Son is in the heart of the Father. Well, in John 17, Jesus is going to pray that we will be where He is. Meaning, He's praying that we would be in the heart of the Father as well. And that's where Jesus is taking us. He brings us to the heart of the Father. But how? Well, in that upper room discourse... He shows us how. He brings us into the heart of the Father by entering into our hearts. He dwells in our hearts so we might come to dwell in the Father's heart. He enters into our hearts and so He can welcome us into His heart and then into the Father's heart. And I think all this is played out in a kind of symbolic way in John chapter 13 where the beloved disciple is resting or reclining against Jesus' heart. That represents all disciples. Where are we now? We're in the heart of the Son, which is the heart of the Father. And of course, all of this was symbolized for the Old Covenant saints by the high priest who would wear a breastplate over his heart with 12 stones to symbolize the people who are on his heart and in his heart as he was ministering. Now that's Jesus. We're on his heart. We're in his heart. And he takes us to where he is, which is in the heart of the Father. In fact, I think the way that John describes Jesus coming to be with us is really the key here. He says, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, but literally he says, and tabernacled among us. He is the tabernacle. He is God pitching His tent in our presence. In other words, every blessing the Israelites would have experienced and would have looked for in the tabernacle and even in the Holy of Holies, which they wanted to enter into, but couldn't because they did not have access to it. God's veils kept them out. All those blessings they associated with the tabernacle are now found in the true tabernacle of the Word made flesh. All those blessings prefigured in the tabernacle are now realized for us in the Word made flesh. So the tabernacle was the place of feasting with God. And what does Jesus do as He goes about His ministry? He's eating and drinking with sinners. The tabernacle has the showbread in it. And Jesus describes Himself as the true bread that has come down from heaven. There's a candle stand or menorah in the tabernacle. A light shining in the darkness there. Jesus is the light that enlightens every man. He is the light of the world. The true candle stand. The true menorah. The priests offered incense to ascend with their prayers. Now our prayers ascend in Jesus' name. He is our incense. The priest would offer sacrifice. Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice who does what the blood of bulls and goats could not do. He takes away our sins. The ten words or ten commandments were kept in the Ark of the Covenant in the Most Holy Place. Jesus is the Ten Commandments. He is the very law of God, the Word of God embodied and enacted. And on and on and on we could go with this, showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was bound up in the tabernacle. 
He fulfills all of it. In fact, John's whole gospel is basically a tour through the tabernacle showing you how Jesus has fulfilled it all. And in fact, in light of verse 14, when we learn that Jesus tabernacled among us, he is God pitching his tent among us, you really got to go back and reread the first 13 verses of the chapter to see, oh yeah, there are all these tabernacle connections and Jesus fulfills them all. Ultimately, of course, the tabernacle is where the glory of God dwelt above the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. But the glory of God was kept hidden by veils. Now John is saying the glory is revealed for all to behold in the crucified and glorified flesh of Jesus. He is God's tabernacling among men. And it's so interesting to me, one more thought here, it's so interesting to me. In the book of Revelation, which is really a companion volume, also written by John, serves as a companion volume to John's Gospel. You come to the very end of Revelation and you see it really matches what is described here. Except this time it's about the church. There at the end of John's Gospel, you've got the bride, or the church, becoming a tabernacle for God to dwell in. And in Revelation, she, the church, is described as a city full of life. Trees of life line the river. She's full of light. She has no need of the sun and the moon. She's cube-shaped like the most holy place. The church has become a home for God's glory. Yes, it's a derived glory in the church. Jesus has his own glory and light and life. But his glory and light and life shine upon us and then through us radiate out into the world. And so understand, there is a glory here in our midst because we are God's church. We are His tabernacle. God dwells in our midst. His glory is here in our midst. God's glory dwells in our hearts. This is a glory we share with one another, a glory we shine into the world because God has made us His tabernacle. And again, this really is what Christmas is all about. Think about how this fits with all of your Christmas celebrations. You know, what makes Christmas so glorious? Christmas is a celebration of the physical, material world because it's all about God becoming flesh. Christmas, in a way, is the ultimate affirmation of this creation along with the resurrection. Christmas brings the spiritual and the physical together because it brings God and man together. Christmas means flesh and indeed the whole physical cosmos will be redeemed and transformed into a home for God's glory to dwell in. And so Christmas is a celebration of God with us. God's grand invasion of the world's darkness with His glorious light. A light that chases the darkness away. In His life, in His death, in His resurrection, Jesus has redeemed us. Jesus has formed us into His church. Now we know, of course, in His human nature, He ultimately returned to heaven. And He has left us here as His occupying forces to carry forward His mission in the power of the Spirit until His final return and the complete triumph of His kingdom. But what do we do in the meantime? It's all about sharing the glory and the love and the light of Christ. The Word made flesh. The Christmas story really starts in eternity past with God and His Word. 
But it's a story that never ends because the glory never ends. The feasting and the presents and the parties and the family time, they all make perfect sense as part of this story, this story of cosmic redemption. This story of the Word made flesh. This story of life and light and glory. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for sending Your, your, your Word into our world. Your incarnate Son who has come to shine His light into our darkness. Raise us from, de- from the death of sin and give us new life. We thank You that His glory has been revealed. A glory that shines upon us and that fills us with glory as well. May we shine that glory, that glory of wisdom and love and truth out into the world as well. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's God's royal priesthood. Let us stand together for prayer. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, Almighty, everlasting God, We praise you for safely bringing us to this day, and we pray that you would defend us by the same with your mighty power. Grant that in this day all our doings will be ordered by your governance, may be righteous in your sight. Give us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplications known to you. We thank you that you do promise that when we are gathered together in your name, you will hear our prayer. Lord, you live and reign forever, and we thank you. May we worship you today with cheerful hearts and holy desires. We thank you that we find your presence in the assembly of your people. Let us walk away from this place in the light of your countenance, deep in the love declared into the world through Jesus Christ. Your help is always at hand, and you deliver us from fear even when the whole earth is shaken. We are gifted with supreme confidence by your grace and power, and we are refreshed by your spirit. We give you thanks today for our faith. We ask that you continue to mature and strengthen our faith, that we will be made more like Christ. We pray that you will be among us today, strengthening the weary, healing the sick, encouraging us all. Thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for not leaving us. Thank you for seeking after us and by Jesus making constant intercession on our behalf. We pray that we confess in our sinfulness that we are weak and selfish. but We know that you have saved us by your grace. And in your strength, we are freed from our sinful prisons. We pray for all among us today that we have full assurance that your grace is sufficient. If any are struggling with doubt. Please help us to come around to them and pray for them and encourage them. If any are struggling with habitual sin, help us to pray and confront them in love and peace. We pray that we will be a body that loves one another well, not judging but approaching each other in love and humility. We pray for our local church here, Lord, in Birmingham, that you would guide us, govern us by your good spirit, that we may be led in the way of truth and hold the faith in the unity of your spirit and the bond of peace and in the righteousness of life. Grow us in maturity, conform us to Christ. Pray that you would make us good servants to our community surrounding us, that they would see the love of Christ in us. We pray for our pastors and officers, that you would guide and direct them in your ways, and that you would lead us with wisdom. We pray for our marriages. Pray that you would strengthen the bonds between husbands and wives, that you would give us wisdom as we seek to raise godly children. In this season of hope, Lord, we pray that anxious hearts and worried minds in this busy season will be pointed toward you. The light is coming to the world. We look toward that light. Guide us in it. We praise you for the light's power and that in the light there is indeed no darkness. Help that to be a reality in so many ways as we reflect upon the coming of our Lord. And we ask you to give us grace to cast away the works of darkness, to put on the armor of that light. 
now in the time of this life in which your son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility. So that in the last day when he shall come again in glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead, we may rise to life immortal. We remember our missionaries today, Lord, around the world. We pray for the various ministries that we support, the, the people that are spreading your gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray for Christians around the world who are being persecuted. We remember especially today some of the Christians in the recent rage and persecution that those in China have suffered. Give them strength and grace to uphold their faith. Lord, we, comfort, we pray for comfort for all who grieve the loss of a loved one during this time. We pray for our expectant mothers and for those who desire to have children. Pray for all, for mercy, for all those traveling during this season. All who are seeking new or better employment. Those of us who have unbelieving family or friends that would be ministers to them, especially during this season. We pray for the singles of our church that you would bless them in, in their current, their current state. We pray for all who are sick or suffering, especially those that we name in our hearts before you now. And most especially, Lord, we summarize all these things in the prayer that your Son and our Savior taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.